You're listening to Neurodiversity at Work. Welcome to today's episode, sponsored and powered by Dynamis Group. Recently honoured to be part of 300 years of leadership and innovation. We at Dynamis believe that business is a catalyst for positive impact in the world. By building a bridge between the top leaders of today and the brightest leaders of tomorrow. We inspire them to do things they have never done before. Hello and welcome everybody to this week's podcast, Neurodiversity, Eliminating Kryptonite, Enabling Superheroes. And it's with me, Theo Smith, your host with the most for Neurodiversity content. So welcome. We have a wonderful guest today. Uh, If you'd like to introduce yourself and let our audience know who you are um, and and what you do and what you're about. And then we'll get into the the, the meat of the discussion conversation um, as we go on. Welcome. Thank you so much, Theo. And you dipped out. You dipped out. We'd had a conversation just before that you were going to say my name. It's not an easy name. So um, thank you so much for having me on here. My name's Kazia Luckett, and I am a positive psychologist and an emotional intelligence expert and speaker and author. And um, I am the founder of Positive Leadership, which is my company. Kazia, brilliant. Right. I knew, I, you know what? I would have got it wrong as well. Even though you just told me, I panicked. And, and, and even though you helped me with, uh, with getting it right. This, but this, that's the reality, right? This human brain. It is. And, and, and especially when you put it under pressure, you just, so I often um, don't use people's names, as I mentioned to you before, for that reason. Even when I meet people, I just, I do whatever I can, even if I know them really well. Uh, so, so thank you for helping me out there. Uh, and yeah, really great to have you uh, with me. We we had a conversation recently on um, a Friday show that I do with Amanda Kirby, uh, and I was fascinated. I wanted to hear more. So that's what, why we're here today. So just why don't you tell the audience a little bit about your background, um, your uh, interest or thoughts around the concept of neurodiversity, anything you'd like to share with our audience to give them a, a sense of who you are and and, and what you do oh gosh it's just, just theo how long have we got i mean <laughs> so uh yeah i know it is it's like check the time check the time so um my background's quite varied um you know i left left school not having a clue as to what i want to do like m- many kids um and i'd been bullied throughout school so my grades were really shocking but i found my love of learning when i moved to america at 21 um, I went back to school and did my schooling, my university there, and and then did a series of different different careers. So I did import and export uh, for 
for Coty Rimmel and Versace and Woolworths and a variety of others. I did pharmaceuticals, so in vaccines and cardiology, so in the cath lab with the cardiologist. And um, and then I discovered um, self-development and created my very first business, which was a female-based concierge business, helping busy corporate women juggle the workload you know, the work-life balance. So I had a team of 35 um, that would go in and do washing and ironing and cleaning and, you know, dinner making and anything that they needed just to be able to help them so that when they walked in through the door, they could focus on their kids. And it was really interesting in that business because I ended up burning out. You know, I was I was helping everybody else. My team was helping everybody else but I burnt out. And I fell into positive psychology by accident. They often say that some of the best moves that you can make in your career are, are you know, happenstance. They come, come about when you least expect it. And that was the case for me. I was getting ready to do a master's in gestalt psychotherapy. And then we found out that we were moving to Barcelona with my husband's work. And there was no way I could be present in two countries while navigating my children settling into new school. And I happened to look on Facebook and somebody mentioned positive psychology. And based on my experience of being bullied, I was like, wow, that would be fascinating to focus on what's right with us rather than what's wrong with us. And I literally interviewed on the Monday. I started on the Saturday and I haven't looked back since. Amazing. So just give us an introduction to what positive psychology is then. So positive psychology is the scientific study of what makes people, organisations and communities flourish and thrive. And a lot of what positive psychology focuses on, um, most people will have had some form of interaction. So even if we take something like gratitude, you know, people have heard about, you know, writing a gratitude journal, they might not know the scientific basis that sits behind that and how that can bolster optimism, increase well-being, increase happiness. So there, there's lots of things that positive psychologists, you know, focus on. Um, and I remember when I was doing my my master's in it, my my professor said to me, you will lay your hat on on a piece of positive psychology that really lights your fire. And the piece that I I focused on is is navigating adversity. How do we navigate adversity? But also the memories that we have of adversity and the stories that we create and how those stories can hold us back in our careers, in our relationships in our love life, in our health, in the, the amount of money that we earn in our jobs, whether we progress in our careers or not. So that was the piece that I really became interested in and, and have spent the last five years working with a variety of different entrepreneurs and business owners around the world um, and creating a, a range of books around how we navigate adversity and how we can take the lessons from them to jet propel us into the future you know, goals and aspirations that we have. Amazing. There's this uh, concept or experience, it's called aphantasia. Um, and effectively, it's where people can't visualize something in their mind's eye. And therefore, if you said, you know, think of a green apple, oh, think of an apple, we think of its color, we think does it have a leaf is on somebody's head. And, and so that a lot of our kind of uh, connection with emotions, uh, like visual memories, right? 
So the trauma, the experiences, when we think of being in that moment again, it can really stress us out, right? So, so when you're talking about the, the positive psychology there, what does that look like? Is it, um, is it helping somebody right, reconnect with some of those experiences and rather than it being the trauma, they see it and they go, ah, I can't stand it. They, they're reimagining that in, in a way that they can take something from it that can empower them to move forwards, to be their better selves or to use it as a strength of experience rather than a challenge experience. Well, it's interesting that you say that because when when I was doing my master's, there was a piece of data that I found and it was um, an amazing uh, professor called Dr. Elizabeth Loftus. And she was commonly known as the false memory implantation lady. And I, I'm not talking like hypnotize, I'm going to, you know, implant false memories. But basically, she looked at the fallibility of our memories, the fact that you know, our, our memories can shift and change. And I, you know, I do a talk on up to 50% of our memories are nothing but lies, because they do shift and change over time. And one of the things that she focused on was, um, she did a, an experiment called the lost in the mole experiment. And basically, um, it was one of her students that did, created this, this, this experiment. And he invited a family member in and they, they, they chose three different memories to, to kind of explore. Now, one of those memories being lost in the mall was, you know, a, a made up story. And actually, he used certain bits of truth around the mall and what it looked like and who he might have gone with as a child. And then he inserted some untruths, which we call post-event information. And the, the, the untruths was that he got lost in the mall. And all of a sudden, what happens often is our brain starts to join dots that aren't already there. You know, it starts to fill in the dots and create these stories around some elements of truth and some elements of untruth. And before you know it, this, this chap was kind of sharing his, his experience of being lost in the mall. Now, it was a complete and utter lie. And at the end of it, when he had to say, well, which of these were, were not true? He couldn't identify it. So the interesting thing there is, is when I work with my clients is let's take a moment of adversity and let's explore what story has been created. And often we create stories when we're younger and we don't have a full understanding of the world. We have a really small window of knowledge around the world at that time. And we never think to update the memory. So we're carrying through this memory and this belief system that's often holding us back based on an understanding that we had maybe when we were five or six. So what I tend to do is take those moments of adversity, take those belief systems that are holding people back and start to explore how they actually are with an adult lens of the world rather than a child's lens of the world. And then they, therefore they can start to rewrite the story. And there's a brilliant quote, it says, edit your life frequently and ruthlessly, it's your masterpiece after all. And this is essentially what we're doing. That's brilliant. And there's a couple of things that come to mind. First of all, is the um, connection between what we've been seeing AI do and machine learning 
when it's been um, doing exactly what you said. It's taking what it can know and what it can find, and then it's making the connections and filling the gap. Almost what, how you explain what the human brain is, can do and does there is my experience of using the AI and, and putting in the information and seeing what comes back. And there's some truths and there's some complete things that are made up to make the connections because it's missing. So it's go well, I'll do this. And then it's so that the human brain and, and that connection, I find fascinating, right? So where technology is going um, is potentially one element. Um, and then the other piece around that is um, I'm from an acting background. And what you would do as an actor when you research a role is you'd be doing a similar thing to what you've mentioned there. You'd be taking those things that you experienced, pain, loss, anger, right? And thinking about where they happened in your life. But then you'd have to connect them with the character that you want to play because they are their own person. And therefore you have to. And when I think about the concept that you're talking about, it's almost being the actor, but in your own life, put the research and the effort into your own journey and pathway and how you're then going to use all of that to decide how you progress and move forwards, um, which I find fascinating because it, it connects to a lot of my experiences and work that I've done throughout my life. Is, is, that, is that it? What, you know, is there, is, do you see those connections? What, you know, what, what are your thoughts? It can be used in so many different ways because ultimately it's about um, connecting to the emotion. So, so the process. If if I was working with somebody on an individual basis, uh, uh, and you know they had some form of adversity or belief system that was holding them back, the first thing that I would do is 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 connect to those emotions exactly as you said. What are the emotions that you feel when you think of failure, for example? You know, what are what are the emotions that you, you feel when you think of a failure? And we explore those those many different facets of emotions. And then what we start to do is when have you felt those in the past? So we then start to map out the memories, those key and everybody has them, those key moments. You know, if if I was to ask you right now, you know, come up with uh, an example of when you had horrific failure I'm sure you'd you'd have them whether it's you weren't able to master riding a bike for a little while or you know standing in front of the, the front of class trying to get your words out as you're, you're you're reading something and that that real failure you know feeling of failure and and all the different emotions associated it and where in the body you might feel it and then we end up with a map a map of all these different places. And what I'm interested in is, is the trigger memory. What is the memory that kick-started off a belief system or a story or a narrative or that inner critic inside your head that is playing out any time you feel that emotion? Because you might be in another situation that may or may not be a failure situation, but you all of a sudden feel those emotions and everything else gets triggered back up again. So that's what I'm interested in. And from there, we can start to unravel all the stories and emotions that are associated that have built this picture to the present day and the belief system that we've got. And do you find that this is a, a key challenge from, from a leader's perspective where maybe they don't have the they they're probably quite lonely when you think about leaders of organizations sort of big functions 
And therefore, some of this stuff that they carry with them, there's never been an, a, a, a way of shifting it, right? So they keep these bags, and maybe they add to these bags, right? So then they've now got these great big bags of uh, memories that, that, are, that are stopping them progress forwards of being as successful as they want to be or just uh, managing their, their general mental health and well-being. Do you find that there is a, a significant proportion of, of leaders who struggle with this and, and require that uh, intervention and support, but maybe often don't get it? I, I, most definitely. I don't think it really matters where you sit in a business. The, the difficulty comes is that when we step into a leadership position is that we have a belief system as to what leaders should be. And therefore, we don't give ourselves permission to fail. We don't give ourselves permission to be in a state that's anything but perfect. You know, we, we're, we're the leaders, we're the living example. And finding that safe space where they can go and share, because, uh, you know, if we look maybe slightly lower down, you know, in a business, employees will often talk to one another when there's things going on or, or you're, you know, they'll have this support network system. For leaders, they, they, they tend to not have that safe space where they can come and just offload. They can come and say, do you know what? Actually, I'm hitting this boundary. And it, it, it still surprises me. It shouldn't do after all of these years, but it still surprises me. You know, I, I might work with a, with a, a leader that's, you know, leading a, a, a multi-million pound business. And they're, they're, they're aiming for that billion pound business. And some of the worries and concerns and things that they feel are holding them back are exactly the same as someone that's just started out in business. That, you know, that the, the, they shift and change slightly, but they're still the same. And the reason they're still the same is we're still human. You know, it doesn't matter where we are or what we're doing or who we're interacting with, we're still human. And therefore, those human emotions which are our guidance system. And, and I think it's really key here, Thea, to just touch on the emotion side because, you know, emotions are our guidance system. And I like to explain it to my clients as, uh, as a house. And you've got a house that's got an alarm system on it. And when that alarm system, that bell starts ringing, you know that your security has been breached in some way and it's your role to go and investigate it. So you might go and check all the windows and the doors. You might, you know, lean out the window to see if anybody's trying to jimmy the windows open. And the same with emotions, whether they're the so-called positive or, or negative emotions, when they come in, they're just alerting us to the fact that our, you know, equilibrium has shifted in some way. Either it's shifted that we're, you know, something really amazing's happened and we're feeling joy and happiness and awe and we want to do more of that. Or it's shifted slightly the other way into the so-called negative emotions of, of shame, of guilt, of worry, of fear. And again, it's what's causing this? Let's investigate it. So all emotions on the, you know, the emotional spectrum are good. They're there to show us something. There are just some that we might not want to stay in for too long. And what's in interesting when we think about the concept of neurodiversity in this space, um, a lot of people uh, that I talk to um, who may be autistic or ADHD or co-occurrence, right? They may be more than one. 
um, there's a lot of rumination that goes on. There's a lot of processing of information, thinking about things again and again and again. And actually connecting back when you're talking about those memories, sometimes they're from very early on. I, I have it, you know, certain things, they come and go as well. So they might go for a year or two, but then they come back and they come back like they're, like they're clear in your mind. But you're, you're right that they, they may have changed again over those last two years. They may not be exactly as they were. You may have added extra pain and suffering to them or um, whatever it may be. So I think as we, we still underestimate or don't really know the prevalence of, you know, ADHD or autism in um, leaders or in people within organizations because of the lack of overall diagnosis or maybe um, the not wanting to connect yourself to a particular label. Um, but certainly then I'm, I'm almost absolutely positive for a lot of people listening, it, those memories and those feelings, those connections can, can stop you doing stuff to the point of, I think for some people, it can stop them leaving the house. It can stop them wanting to go into a, a public space because um, the level of anxiety and trauma is so great and they've never dealt with it or kept pushing it down that it just keeps coming back and getting them. So in, in that sense, thinking about the positive psychology, um, it, 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 it can literally affect, uh, uh, help anybody at any aspect of their lives, but certainly people who didn't want to deal with the labels, I think, and therefore don't understand truly what's going on in the, in the brain, I think this is a, a way for people to maybe overcome some of those significant challenges. And I wonder the impact of COVID as well and what your thoughts are since the, the positive elements of people being able to work from home and stuff like that, but then the isolation and therefore stuff that they didn't deal with and how that then impacts on their ability should they want to go back into an environment where how that then affects them? And again, this, I, I've talked to leaders of talent acquisition functions, HR functions, who since COVID, you know, they've got a lot of anxiety around going back into those types of environments. So just uh, your thoughts around that, I guess. I'd love to touch on something you said just before that, though, because I think it's really important. You know, yes. thinking of, of, of neurodiversity and the memories that we have, you know, how people handled our emotions as a neurodiverse, you know, individual and the influence of them handling it or not handling it and how that influences us moving forward. Because oftentimes we might have caregivers, we might have teachers, you know, individuals that A, had no understanding of neurodiversity because let's be honest, you know, I hate to say it, Thea, but we're of a certain age that, you know, th this is still a relatively new thing for, for, for many people. So they, they wouldn't have had an understanding and they would have potentially have perceived those individuals as difficult or, you know, they would have given them different labels. And, and many people will have carried those labels through based on other people's perceptions, based on other people's language. And it's, it's that we get a chance, as I said, that, you know, my favorite quote is edit your life frequently and ruthlessly. It's your masterpiece after all. We can discard or hand back those labels and that, that language that people would have used back then to describe what we were going through. 
So I think that that's the first thing that I want to say with regards to COVID. I, I really think that one of the best things that ever came out of COVID is companies shift to focus on well-being. You know, more and more companies now are focusing on well-being. And it's interesting because positive psychology is 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 big in, in, in the US. Um, it's where it was founded by Martin Seligman. And in many countries, uh, many companies in, in the States, they have uh, roles for positive psychologists called chief happiness officers. And they basically sit in between the HR function and the employees. And their main role is to be that fluid bridge between the two, because still we often find that employees still find it difficult to speak openly and honestly, you know, with HR, you know, there's still that stigma around HR. And, and I know lots of companies are working at the psychological safety to be able to offer a space for employees to be able to share what's working, what's failing, how they're feeling, their mental well-being. But there's still a little a little bridge that needs to continue to, to, to be made. So I think that's something that the, the Americans are a little step ahead of us. But that being able to focus on the well-being is has been great. I, I also think hybrid working is both uh, a brilliant thing for some individuals, but devastatingly bad for others. You know, those that maybe don't have a, you know, a, a network, um, a community of people around them, it's thrusting them into an isolation that they really, you know, many can't navigate out of. For others that maybe do have that support network, um, you know, having that flexibility to have time to self-manage and, you know, whether that's their time, whether it's the workload, etc., is, is really important. And then having that connection to the team is, is, um, is good too. But I do think that, it, you know, it's a duality like anything in life. You know, there is good and bad and it depends on the individual. It depends on their circumstances. It depends on their well-being. And I do think HR professionals have... Um, sometimes a big challenge at hand of being able to, to, to navigate the full spectrum across, you know, that each and every individual that um, finds it good and bad. Yeah. And when I think again about the concept of neurodiversity and when I started looking into the topic four years ago, five years ago, whatever it was, I, I found there was just too much net and I've mentioned this many times, but there's too much negativity Right? There was all stuff around what was wrong with some of these autistic or dyslexic or ADHD, the long lists of why, you know, the person wouldn't like light or sound or people or blah, like, and I found it so frustrating. And I guess this is almost the lens that it's needed, the, the, the lens of positive psychology to look at um, what we can draw out around the strengths, the abilities, the experiences, how we can... Um, how we can reimagine them, see them in a different way, and how we can empower people to have a voice around that that isn't just psychologists who don't understand, didn't understand, and maybe don't want to understand, or academics of the same, or GPs, or whoever within that professional sphere um, has, uh, for whatever reason, through history, through maybe the way they were taught, 
or through their own belief system have only seen it as in as the negative medical paradigm of something that needs to be fixed uh, and i think so bringing a bit of that chief happiness to maybe from a british perspective it's uh oh it's the uh, american happy thing again uh well actually no it's it's that focus on well-being i think you're absolutely right that has been missing and that so many people especially if we think of uh uk some european culture just didn't want to uh, attribute um anything towards uh, the negative connotations of challenges around mental health and when we all got mental health <laughs> and we all have challenges and we all have a well-being that we need to look after and when it's reframed to allow people to go okay we're not talking about being broken we're talking about getting the best out of our bodies our minds um, our lives our relationships then when organizations help you reimagine it in that way however that is chief happiness or um, positive psychology or I think that is a really important role that should um, sometimes segment HR, which unfortunately does often have to advise a manager on how they're going to deal with an employee. How can that employee know that they're going to get the support from the HR business partner or manager, or whatever, that is supporting their manager? You know, there is a huge conflict there in terms of who's who that person is responsible to within the organization and who their priority is to support an individual that there ain't no happiness involved in that <laughs> right? no and this is the, and this is the role i think of the chief happiness officer you know if we want to look at uh, a brilliant chief happiness officer if you look at um gary v his chief happiness officer is Claude Silver, who's an amazing woman, absolutely amazing. And, and she's the person that's looking at the, the, those types of things. Um, and and I, I see a place for it in the UK. The other thing that I, I, I think that if we were reimagining the future, if we were really reimagining what it would mean to step into greatness in in, in our in our roles in business and our roles in relationships etc one of the key things that i think companies could learn from is rather than having a job description where you know the boundaries have already been set and we're trying to squeeze people you know who's going to be the best fit for, for this particular boundary let's look at people's strengths let's look at what is it that they love doing which puts them in a state of flow and when it, you know they love doing what they love doing and they're in a state of flow it's no longer work you know we we, we look at what gives them meaning what really excites them what gives them this sense of meaning about the work that they do because again when people have that meaning that's going to bolster happiness that's going to bolster well-being at work it's also going to bolster productivity and increase your attention rate which are really important things we know how much it costs to rehire people because you know they weren't the right fit well maybe they weren't they're not the right fit because you're trying to squeeze them into this box let's look at the skill set let's look at the things that you know maybe back in our day theo was considered weird or, or or not right or needed fixing as actually 
these are their strengths. How can we utilize this? How can we allow them to do the bits that they're really good at, that bring them great joy? And how can that have an impact on our business? And when you start to look at it like that, we see people for who they are rather than just a number or an employee, you know, a tick box exercise. And that's what it's all about. This is how businesses are going to shift and change. This is how businesses are going to get ahead in, in, in the future. Let's look at people as human beings. And, and just to give an example of that, I, I work with a tech company and um, they start introduced the concept of neurodiversity. I helped them launch their employee resource group, ERG. And then those individuals who were a part of that group, who then were being heard and being able to share some of their lived experience as a parent or as somebody who's autistic, right? All of a sudden you've gone from that was a separate part of their identity that they didn't bring to work, that that was then an identity that they could bring to work and have a conversation about, to the point of where they started then to bring that part of their identity into product design. All of a sudden now they're designing products that may help their child in school um, because it's designed with autism in mind because they've been allowed to bring that part of the eye. So that, that when you're talking, it's not just about happiness in, in that context, but it, it's like it's enabling people. Even sometimes it's bringing some of that pain in, but in a way that they can do something with it rather than having to leave it at the door all the time. And I, and I, you know, sometimes it's not about bringing your whole self to work because sometimes I don't want to come and tell people how bad a night I had last night, right? I don't want to do that. I don't want to bring that. I want to leave it because it's not something I want to talk about. But I need to be able sometimes to, uh, when I can, when maybe weeks later, be able to laugh about it and talk about it and say, you know, I have a challenge, get my daughter to bed, or, or something like that. Whereas normally you wouldn't talk about it because you fear the repercussions, how people would view you um, and how they view your child and all that other stuff. So that, that, that brings happiness in the sense that you, you don't have to worry so much about some of this stuff, right? And I think there is an example with neurodiversity specifically in mind, but we can see it in um, when we talk about menopause or perimenopause for women being able to have that conversation, when we talk about the loss of a child and like just all of these things that you don't have to just leave at the door. There's somebody who's going to be willing to hear it, as well as looking at ways to enable you through better technology and stuff like that, or making sure you've got the right pay and making sure you can have the right location. It's that whole piece, isn't it? And But it's all connected to what's going on up here. It is. And do you know what? I'm sitting here with a big smile on my face because the strap line on my website is step into greatness and bring your whole self to work. And it is that piece. It is, you know, like you say, not necessarily, we, we don't want you to kind of come in and go, oh my goodness, you know, and, and, and for an hour and a half, somebody else having to, to, to listen to that on a daily, daily basis. But actually being able to bring all aspects of who you are. You know, I'm a positive psychologist. I'm I'm also a mum and a wife and a friend and a sister and a and an aunt and all of those things. You know, and 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 we we talked this morning about um I can't remember what the word is. You know, when you get your your numbers round the wrong the wrong way. Dyscalculia. 
Yes. And I think, you know, I, I'm, uh, you know, somewhat experiencing that. So, you know, we, we've all got these different aspects of ourselves. And when we're hiding bits of that, and we can't bring that to work. It's like, well, it is like, it's like, what mask am I wearing today? You know, am I wearing the, the work mask? You know, I can't be a mum. Am I wearing the, the work mask? I can't be a woman of a certain age going through menopause. And, and when we're putting those masks on, it, it's exhausting. And that in itself is what accounts for the burnout. That is what accounts for, you know, the dis-ease in the body. We have to be given permission to, to bring our whole selves to work and have the psychological safety to be able to do it. Absolutely. That's brilliant. So any final hints and tips, thoughts or considerations for our audience as, as we wrap today's conversation up? Oh, gosh, there's so many. There's so many. The one thing that I would say is that when we have the courage to be vulnerable and to share stories, whether it's stories of not being able to get your daughter to bed at night or or the stories of, you know, um, managing an unseen illness or or caring for, for, for family members or any of those things, we automatically give permission to other people to do the same. And that permission piece is really, really important because in us being vulnerable, we give permission to other people to be the same. Now, I will say that there is a little caveat with that is sometimes you can be courageous and vulnerable and the person that you're speaking to is not in the space to hold that. You know, and we, we've, we've seen in, in, in many companies, you know, the mental aid first aiders that are holding the space, which is which is great. Um, but it's, it's just being aware that sometimes people can't hold that space for us. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't share. It just means that we're maybe sharing with the wrong person. Brilliant. That's lovely. And if people want to find you, where can they find you? They can find me on LinkedIn under Kazia Luckett. Uh, alternatively, if they go to positiveleadership.global, that's my website, and they can learn a little bit about the ways in which I can help individuals and companies. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, love the conversation. Uh, and yes, please go and um, find uh, Kazia um, at LinkedIn or whatever you can on a website and learn more. Uh, and we welcome your thoughts and comments. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Neurodiversity, Eliminating Kryptonite, Enabling Superheroes. Hope you enjoyed the show. You can like, share, comment, find us anywhere on any good podcasting host. You can also do some further reading up and buy my book, uh, co-authored with Professor Amanda Kirby, neurodiversity at work you can get it on amazon with Kogan page our publisher and pretty much any other good bookstore enjoy look forward to your feedback and keep listening to the show thank you <laughs>